Hi, this is David Flowers, senior pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S., and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast, and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Today, we've invited Rich Steubing uh, to preach on the message, on the text that you just heard, a message on what is known as the Great Commission. Rich, why don't you go ahead and come on up, and I'm going to pray for Rich before he shares the message that God has put on his heart. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Rich as a member of this church and as a friend I thank you, Lord, for his family, all that you've done in their lives and ministry up to this point. We pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would feel rich, that you would speak through him powerfully. Open up our hearts and our minds, Lord, to hear the truth. Convict us where we need to be convicted, Lord. Challenge us where we need to be challenged. And encourage us and empower us, Lord. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You're to be forgiven if you came and thought, wait a minute, is this Mission Sunday? <laughs> no, it's not. Um, so what's the difference between Mission Sunday and this Sunday? I mean, after all, I've spoken from this pulpit many times in the past because I spent 40 years in Africa, in Zambia. And even on this particular passage, generally known as a great commission, that's a common missionary theme, but today I'm not going to be speaking so much as a missionary, but more in the context of what does this passage have to say for us here at Grantham. Having said that, I was one of these people who went into all the world, and so for those many of you who really don't have an idea of who I am, you probably think this shirt is ending, but it's Ethiopian. Uh, I want to say just a little bit about the foreign aspect and then get on to the main focus, which is here. First of all, please get it straight that missionaries do not magically reach a higher spiritual level by flying at a higher altitude in airplanes, okay? That doesn't go together. Similarly, missionaries don't somehow become holier people due to a change in geography. You know, going to Africa doesn't change your holiness, right? We're like everybody else. But having said that, there obviously are challenges for somebody who goes to a different culture and stays there for four decades. So I'd like to illustrate that just a little bit quickly to give you an idea of sort of where I came from, and then we'll get on to Zambia. Okay. First of all, where is Zambia? That slide is there, okay, for those of you geographically challenged. Zambia is in southern, south central Africa. Uh, some of you have seen references to our daughter who was a medical missionary in Malawi. If you go just to the right of Zambia, a little skinny country on Zambia's eastern border is Malawi. Okay. The, to the north of Zambia, that huge 
which country is the Democratic Republic of Congo? That comes into the story later on, so keep that in mind. Secondly, if you're going to Zambia, you really have to see Victoria Falls. Uh, one of the wonders of the seven wonders of the world, uh, named by David Livingston, really the only thing he ever named after his mark, but uh, very, very impressive. The next one is just a little different. You don't find these in the back garden. This is a flat-eared chameleon, and because they're so unusual, most Zambians are terrified of them. Their eyes operate independently, their tail is prehensile, wraps around things, their feet are strange, they obviously change colors depending on their temperament and so forth, but they can be tamed, as you can see, because it's on my finger, and they are great at eating flies when your wife is baking cookies in the kitchen. Okay. This picture shows, this sort of illustrates what I did for 12 years in Osaka, the capital. I taught the senior high mathematics, I trained as an engineer, and this was the best place I ever taught. They were the most Christians, they were the best academically. Uh, the fellow in the white shirt in the middle, sort of light of complexion, became one of the leading surgeons in Zambia. He's passed away now. The guy down in the front row with a big shirt is now working as a clinical psychologist in Canada. These guys, almost all of them are still working uh, with the Lord, uh, with the church, active Christians. So teaching guys like that is just a great privilege. But most of the time, Kathy and I are at the Theological College of Central Africa, now called Anatolical University. And she was in college-level seminary, if you like, and so I did all sorts of different things there. And I'm still involved in theological education. I just don't go back to Africa quite as much. Ah, I'm really curious what's going to happen this morning because this is a picture of my honorary for preaching at a Pentecostal church in Angola. And so I'm very eager to see if I will be repeated this morning. Whether my honorary will be alive or not. Now, unfortunately for the chicken, um, he was fine, she were, was fine in my arms because, you know, Wazulu, these white people don't eat chickens at all. But as soon as I handed it to the pastor's wife, Mrs. Wallia, it just came apart because he knew he was headed for the pot that afternoon. Some of you would say, yes, that's home, like Jonathan and Becky and the uh, Owen children. This is a picture from Evacom, the Evangelical Bible College of Malawi. Um, I was leading an accreditation team there several years ago. And all of the Africans there are personal friends of mine, two from Zambia, two from Kenya. Uh, just a wonderful team there. And I could regale you the stories just that week, but uh, it's a great privilege to work with such marvelous people. And the final slide. I do nursery duty in Africa as well, not just here, okay? I like kids. And I was in a very long service in Nigeria, it was a beautiful little girl. Was kind of getting tired of the long service. You think these services have all come to Africa? And so I just reached out and she happily plopped into my lap and I went a little walking and cuddling and fell asleep and slept through the entire sermon. I'm hoping you won't do the same. Right? Okay. Back to the scripture. This scripture is well known, but it is often used, I think, in the wrong way, as if this only applies to foreign missionaries. And let's not 
familiar words are Jesus' last words in Matthew, last words to his disciples. And that's significant because this is the most Jewish of the Gospels. And Jesus is talking about going to all the nations, not just staying within Judaism, staying within Jerusalem, if you like. How many disciples have understood that? We're going to unpack that a little bit as we go through it. But uh, we're certainly not thinking about getting on a plane and flying to Zambia, right? That's not what it meant to them, and that's initially not what it should mean to us as well. So Jesus had been given authority by his Father. These are his final instructions that he me. And he says, make disciples. That's really the only imperative, the command in the passage. The other things sort of grow out of that. Making disciples is what the main thrust is. That's not the same as evangelism. Now, preaching and conversion, all these things are obviously very important. But there's a problem in, if that is only, the only focus. Make people say, I believe in Jesus. Have a profession of faith or decide for Jesus. Now, however we say that, the question here is what happens later? Is there growth? What happens next week and next year and five years? Making disciples is what that's talking about. So there needs to be growth afterward. Now, discipleship is basically helping people to become lifelong learners, not so much an academic sense, but learning to follow Jesus in a deeper way. Now remember the 12 disciples had three years of following Jesus, if you like. They saw how he reacted to opposition from religious teachers. They saw him heal. They heard him teach a lot. Uh, they saw how he reacted to people who were not well, maybe people like lepers who were outcasts in society. He saw how Jesus, they saw how Jesus related to women who were often oppressed and had a lower place in society. It took them three years there. They had lots of time to observe and follow Jesus. And discipleship takes time for us too. We can't expect that it's going to happen like that. Now, one of the things that didn't happen like that as well last year is the Discipleship Commission, which I chair, took forever to try to come up with a definition that we could all be happy with. The staff talked about this, the commission talked about this, finally the board approved it, and here it is. The definition being that disciples, plural, are people in community who, empowered by the Holy Spirit, are growing to love, follow, and lead others to the God who looks like Jesus. Now, my note at the end there is that we do discipleship together in community. It's not a we and Jesus thing. This is us. We depend on the Holy Spirit to help us to progress, to move ahead. And the results should be observable. We ought to be able to see these things in various ways. Living, following, leading others to God. Now, this is deliberately inclusive of all that we are. It's, it's not just what we observe on Sunday mornings. Um, discipleship is corporate, not individualistic. So how do we recognize it? Again, that's a big, big question. If it's a learning process, how do we assess the evidence? You know, we have a final exam in this course. So this is one of the things that we need to think about. Now, these areas are more subjective than objective. You can't, you know, break them by numbers. That's, you know, not really possible. But we can see progress, and that often happens, or usually happens, in 
part of the way, where we get to know somebody well enough that we can talk about these things more freely. Now, one of the biggest challenges that, that Kathy and I had in 40 years of examining was trying to determine what was cultural and what was biblical. What parts of Zambian culture were just okay, they were neutral. And what parts of culture really need to be addressed as evil. For example, when we got to Zambia many years ago, many of the early missionaries had banned the use of drums in worship. Oh, why? Because drums were often associated with drunkenness and immorality. And so, Drums must be dead. No. Drums are neutral. Drums now are used in most of our churches. And I must say, we do it a little bit more in Zambia than we do with Grantham, but that's all right. We're getting used to that. But there's some aspects of Zambian culture that did need to be addressed as evil. One of them is the abuse of widows. Widows were just treated terribly in Zambia. Um, all their property taken because it belongs to the husband and so forth. And that just had to be addressed as something that needed to change. But that was difficult to try to figure out what culturally was okay and what wasn't okay. We need to do the same thing here. Sometimes I was questioning, oh no, 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 we shouldn't question our culture. Yes, we should. People did it in the scriptures, we need to do it here. And one of the various areas I think that really hurts us in our spiritual growth is American individualism. Where does this quote come from? Apparently, fairly recently, the staff were discussing some articles by Ted Keller, who just passed away a few weeks ago. Uh, in this article here, he quotes somebody called Robert Bellin, who wrote a very well-known book like 30 years, 40 years ago on the habits of the heart. And this is what Tim Keller says. Bella shows that the social history of the United States makes it perhaps the most individualistic culture in the world. No culture, more than American culture, elevates the interest of the individual over those of family, community, and nation. No culture more than the US culture attributes one's character, identity, life conditions strictly to individual decisions and choices. That's not biblical. Scripture emphasizes us as the body of Christ, not just me. And so that was on to something there that we need to be very careful about because it really doesn't fit well with discipleship if we're trying to do discipleship corporately. Now do we, for example, in our concern for mutual growth in discipleship, how often do we actually go up to someone here and affirm what we see in their lives? I hope you do that. But we don't tend to do that very well. On the other hand, how often do we, in a sensitive and loving way, go up to somebody we know and say, I'm concerned about what I'm seeing. That doesn't seem to be right. We are very individualistic in our society, and so we need to be careful, I think, to address affirmation and correction as appropriate. That's part of discipleship. By the way, to those who are screaming today, we miss you. 
This is one of the aspects that I fear you miss. If you are physically able to come here and on Sunday mornings, and I realize many are not, but if you are, you really should try to come back. I, just personally, I miss some of you that used to be around, and I hope that you will think about returning. Now, at this point, I want to ask for the congregation to tell me this, to talk to people like Pastor Listen, the discipleship pastor, and me, people on the commission, there are questions here that we need to address, and we need input from the congregation. These are only a few. What should discipleship look like? How can we assess the areas of spiritual growth, both as individuals and as a congregation? How do we know that we are growing? The last one's kind of a naughty question. Is it enough to count the number of people who attend learning community on Sunday mornings? Quick answer, no. Why not? The reason we can't do that is that, goodness, how long do we spend here on Sunday morning? If you come for learning community through churches, maybe three hours. Other people, maybe not as long as that. That's a lot of hours that you're not here, that we are not here. So, what does discipleship look like? like at the job, in the classroom, uh, filling out your tax forms, driving and hitting traffic when somebody cuts in on you, being alone with your tablet or your phone or your computer, what is discipleship like, like there? Or, and you will forgive me as a tennis player, I had to add this, what is discipleship look like when you double fault at A9 in a tiebreaker? You say, why would you say that? Well, I'm not a scoring system in tennis because I play a lot, and I need you to lose. But, you see, when Pastor Flowers is here, he's always talking about Star Wars references, but I never understand. <laughs> so I'm trying to get him to Google the, the new scoring system in tiebreakers, okay? I'll ask you later. All right. Okay, I'll fill in the temptation there. Let's transition a little bit to this reference to all nations. Um, what does it mean? What did it mean to them? Well, if the disciples hear this, they're going to think, wow, all the nations, we're in Jerusalem with Jewish people. So, if this is traditionally called the Great Commission, where are we supposed to go? Well, mainly, at least, at the very least, meant don't stop with the Jewish people in Jerusalem. This is for way more than that. Prophecy would talk about that as well. But they were already in contact with mainly Jewish people, some Gentiles, you couldn't avoid that in Judea. But the gospel message was supposed to go beyond that. Well, if you fast forward to the book of Acts, what happened? Well, the disciples were very happy that they could stay in Jerusalem. And there were some non-Jews, some Greek-speaking Jews and so forth that came and they sorted out some problems in chapter 6. But the only reason they really left Jerusalem was persecution. They were happy to spend time with people who looked and felt like them. And that's one of the areas that we have to think about ourselves. You can imagine the, the adjustment that, that I had coming back. I would stand up here and everybody's the wrong color, right? And it felt funny. It really did. And some of you know that if Person, you know, black person, especially an African, comes here, I'm going to get real out of here. But sometimes 
standing by themselves, and I think we can probably do better than we have. Um, we'll get back to the book. Some of you remember Sylvester Kay, who was a Liberian refugee. His country had gone through a civil war, terrible story. He was in a refugee camp for years and years before he came here. Arkansas Alberta especially really helped him to settle in. He worked at the side of life place where I lived. And yet, he would often just be standing by himself out there. And I, that was a burden for me. And we can probably do a little bit better about welcoming people who may look differently than we do. The other thing, of course, is that lots of international students come to Zion University. And uh, instead of us going out somewhere, they come to us. And so we can probably take advantage of that and welcome them. Now, for parents, you would have to go into all the world to find people to disciple because they're right in your home. But so often, parents rely on the church to do the discipling. Hey, we've got learning communities, we've got youth group, we've got retreats. And thank you to Chrissy and her team for doing a wonderful job with them. But hey, parents are with them a whole lot more than the youth leaders here at church. And so discipleship in the home is, is also very important. Things like Bible study and prayer together and so forth. I hope that parents do that. Another aspect of that, though, that I kind of bumped into in a way some years ago, uh, one of the members of the congregation came to me and said, um, do you think you could mentor our teenage son? I said, well, I've never done that before. What do you mean? He said, well, we were talking as a family, and we thought this young man would benefit from somebody outside the family who both the parents and the teenager could trust. And then I said, okay, let's give it a shot. What have I been for? I a year and a half or something like that. So I was in his home. We went up to you know, have breakfast. I'd go to his sports matches and things like that. And they would just hang out. Anything was on the table. You could talk about anything you wanted. And I think it was mutually beneficial. It might be something for some people to consider. Now, before I go on, I want to challenge not just young people, but everybody in a general sense, to consider the call of God beyond central Pennsylvania. We don't care much about that anymore. I'm prejudiced. I'm really agree. Because of the fulfillment I had in Zambia. But I think we need to mention that once in a while anyway. God's will became very clear to me, but it was only after time that's in prayer. And you say, oh, but my family would not be happy with that. My dad was not happy with that. My dad was not a practicing Christian. In fact, was an alcoholic, never went to church and so forth. Good father, anyways. But he wanted me to take over the family engineering business in Cincinnati. I was an engineer like he was. And I had to go to him at one point and say, Dad, it's not going to happen. To his credit, he did not cut me off. We maintained a very good relationship. But family differences may come into that. Um, my testimony is that you can work through that. But pray about your future. It took me nine months to get clear about what God wanted me to do in my life after graduation. And you might want to just talk with people who've done this. I mean, my wife, Kathy, is here on the front, the most beautiful one in the congregation. Sorry for the rest of you. Um, Phil and Elaine Tuma back here, again, spent decades in Zambia as, as we did. Sometimes you just need to talk about what it's like 
like you to be there? Let me state as strongly as I can. Living in a foreign culture like that is not a sacrifice. We hear that all the time. That is a privilege, not a sacrifice. I mean, the fulfillment in its everything. I mean, goodness, we do it all again in the job of a hat. But I'm too old to do that now. All right. The passage goes on to talk about baptizing the disciples. I'm going to leave the details to Pastor David and Pastor Melissa. They do more of that than I do, and that's good. But it's important to recognize the importance of baptism here. Because it's not only a public statement of faith, but it's an opportunity for blessing. And many of you can testify to that as well. So don't go past that too quickly. If you're interested in baptism, if you've not been baptized, here are the people to see. It's also, right after that, a reference to the Trinity. A Trinity is not a New Testament word. It's not a Greek word for a Trinity in the New Testament. It was actually introduced to church history by the church father Tertullian. But it's a good word. It describes what we believe in this passage, baptized new believers in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, all right? Some of you know I'm very hesitant to quote verses out of context. I don't like this sort of razor blade approach where you stick it somewhere. But this one works pretty well on its own. There are not lots of references where all three persons of the Trinity are in one place. This is one, so I think that's an exception to the rule. But again, I'll leave the development of the doctrine of the Trinity to people more able than I am. That would be a next sermon series, guys, okay? Now, the next aspect, and a very important aspect of this command, was that these converts, these disciples, were to be taught, teaching them to obey all that I taught you, basically. Okay? So, what does that look like? Well, the problem is sometimes we forget that teaching is important. People become Christians, and they think that they've given their lives to the Lord, they've the Holy Spirit, and they're fine. That's not good. Christians come into a context, the body of Christ, a Christian community. Okay, it's possible on your own, it's not ideal. So, this attitude of me and Jesus is not the best way forward. We need to learn together. So, what's the content? All I have commanded you. How do we do that? Well, in short, Bible study. We can do that on our own, yes, but it's usually better together. We've got a, another text here, if we can get that on, Rachel, um, from John. The best part of this is the end of it. But note the context here. The context here is very important. Jesus said to the people who believed in him, You are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We like to quote verse 32 because we like freedom. Fine, why don't you? What's the source of freedom? Ah, the source of freedom is truth, and the truth is based on Jesus' teachings. So this idea of, I want to be free, is not somehow separated from Jesus' teachings. This is the source of freedom. And so we need to put those verses together, to keep them together. Now we've got Bible studies here and there all around the church. 
We have some of the learning community time. There's some during the week. Um, the Sarah Becky, where did you go, Sarah? Okay, Sarah Becky leads a women's study first, third, fifth Thursday mornings here in the church. We have a men's Bible study at 6.45 a.m. on Friday. Um, and the way people stay awake is that everybody in the place, Kevin Turner and I, has a cup of coffee in their hand. Um, it's not only a benefit of knowing the scriptures, but it's a benefit of doing this together, to get other people's input, to build friendships in this special time. And I encourage you to try and take advantage of those opportunities if you can. Another place that helps to build up is a class that started for a project, a workshop, that just started this morning. This story sharing, you've seen the slide if you were here before the service and watching these slides go by. This story sharing time, first Sunday this morning, so there are three more meetings just down here. And uh, if you're interested in knowing more about that, Melissa Lothler and Julia Johnson would be the people to see. And finally, I want to focus on the end of the passage. It's a very short passage. But it's a wonderful promise that Jesus promises to be with us whatever the situation, wherever we go into all the world. I am with you always. Because Jesus had been given the authority by his Father so he could decide how to be with these people, and he is. But we often fear what we haven't gone through, okay? We fear what we've not experienced, assuming the worst might happen to us. Well, the rest of my time is going to be talking about that. After teaching mathematics for 12 years in Osaka, the theological college came together and we moved 200 miles north with two small children. And it's the place where we moved was right on the border of what we call TRC, Democratic Republic of Congo. And I was playing tennis with my friends in Osaka. I said, I'm moving to Angola. They said, you are crazy. That is the most dangerous city in Zambia. What are you doing? These were not necessarily believers. All right, the problem was that thieves could come in, do housebreaking, rob cars, whatever, and just like that, be across the border, and the police couldn't chase them. Well, many of the police were corrupt anyway, or were on the tape. So every night in those early days in the building, Kathy and I would hear gunshots as we prayed going to sleep. We could almost identify the different kinds of firearms. And we prayed for protection from thieves. But then the gang of thieves came to our house. Now, I've never told the whole story of this before, and it was 40 years ago. And I wasn't going to do it even now. They talked to the pastor, the pastor said, you know, I think you want to just do the whole thing. So I'm going to go into more detail than I've done it before. But I think you will agree that this is a case of some high drama, and the presence of God in a very difficult situation, a very dangerous situation. Um, our kids were two and four at the time, an age where impressions are strong, and I'll get back to that in just a little bit. It was the only house we could find to rent. It was a little bit outside the door. And so this gang of our men came out at midnight. Thanks to Alec Lawrence. Thank you, Alex, for the CAD, uh, I couldn't do that, but he couldn't. Just like that, I thought I'd people who could do things much 
can. So let me go through what happened that night. I'm not sure you can see the numbers so well, but let's give it a shot. About midnight, we found later that the phone lines were cut. This was common in those days, no cell phones then. And we had to use a big shovel to smash the windows next to our bed, last on the bed. The, we couldn't communicate the phone, so we turned on the siren. Well, we're all scared. No, not at all. They still banged away at things. Trying to get into the main bedroom, the burglar bars held, so they started pulling out curtains. We went down to the other side, where it says flat, right? Down to the other side, where there was an adjacent small apartment where two young Zambian guys lived, and we banged on that and said, hey, there are thieves here, and they said, yeah, we know because they had been on the other side of the house in the main bedroom. So we came back through the door there and then heard a very loud noise. You see where the door on the kitchen is on the outside, okay? Um, they smashed that down. We had gone back through the pantry and were on the other side of that smaller inside door when we heard a shot. I think the shot there, I can't see the numbers, but uh, five? Yeah. The shell was found on the floor near the five there. The, the, the shot toward where we were, number three, on the other side, the door was closed. They heard our voices. The gun obviously kicked up. We found uh, it went into that door frame uh, just near five there and up into the ceiling. If you line it up, they're aimed right where we were. But the gun kicked up. By this time, we, think, we thought we'd better get on out of there. So just as we were ready to leave that door, the handle started rattling. And Kathy said, I could feel them on the other side. If they would have shot then, I probably wouldn't be here. I mean, I was three feet away. But for some reason, they didn't shoot then. We went back to the kids' bedroom. The kids were crying by this time. You know, what's going on, Daddy and Mommy? Um, but let me pause and say that even at this point, there was complete peace. It was almost as if we were going around checking boxes. You know, you, you go to Giant or Wise and you're checking your list, that's done, that's done, I got that. There was no fear at all in the middle of all this breaking windows and sirens and gunshots and things like that. Um, People often in coming days said, I heard about your terrifying ordeal. Trouble was, it wasn't terrifying. There was no terror during the time. That came later. The sleeplessness and the anxiety, that came later. But the children were awake, and so we decided in this old house, there was an upstairs, so where that uh, stairs is on nine, we went upstairs. Well. We, we, sorry, I'm, I'm jumping ahead of eight. The reason eight is there. We prayed with the children before we went upstairs. We were sitting on the sofa. The guys are hammering away at this door. And we went upstairs. We fully expected the door to break. I mean, after all, they had broken a very heavy kitchen door from the outside. The door that they were hammering on is an inside door, a hollow door. And later on, we saw it was cracked all the way across the middle. The plaster was coming out of the door frames. A whole door frame was going to come out, and somehow it held. I'm trained as an engineer. I can't explain that in engineering terms. Kathy wonders how many angels were pushing from the other side. I don't know. Maybe in heaven we'll find out. 
But we went upstairs, and again, we're talking with the children. David was just learning to talk. He was two, and he kept saying, men breaking things, and he knew he wasn't supposed to do that. Beth, the one in Malawi, was saying, Daddy, why are people thieves? So we're discussing this theological problem of evil with a four-year-old in the middle of all these sounds and things like that. Then we heard the sound of people running. We thought, this doesn't make sense. What's going on? So I carefully looked down the window, and these guys were just heading out. Pause, and then we heard voices of our friends, of our neighbors. Rich, are you okay? Um, so I told Kathy, I said, okay, I'm going downstairs. You lock this door, and you don't open for anybody but me. Went downstairs. What had happened is one of our neighbors had just been propelled, he thought, to come down and help. His weapon, if you like, was a dishwashing liquid bottle full of ammonia, which gets your attention if you take it in the eyes, all right? So he came down, went by the kitchen, door was broken, one of the thieves came out, shot at him, missed him as well, said, sit, sit. So the guy squatted down. That's how we knew how many people there were. He said there were 10 or 12 people with iron bars and machetes, we call them pangas, things like that. And so he started to squat down, and he thought, I'd rather get shot than chopped with a panga or hit with an iron bar. So he jumped up and started to spray this ammonia. Well, I mean, how many people can you get with a little bottle of ammonia when there are 10 people there? But immediately, the entire gang fled. It doesn't make sense. So anyway, we were able to come downstairs. These were gone. Somebody went for the police and so forth. But the, it's incredible that that even happened. Um, friends have asked numerous times, early days and even sometimes more recently, but what about your kids? You know, that would really mark your kids, a two-year-old and a four-year-old. They would have bad dreams. As far as we know, they never did. No bad dreams. Um, so what about our kids now? I mentioned that our daughter lives in Malawi. As some of you know, the Grantham Church supports David, uh, Beth and Ben and the family in Malawi. She's a trauma surgeon there. Our son David, his wife Melissa, not these two, are going to Kenya next month. Uh, our daughter-in-law has a a uh, program that works with addiction counseling for non-literate people. She's doing a big workshop near, near Nairobi. My kids love Africa. They never had bad dreams. They live, Africa. they live in Africa or visit Africa. It did not affect them in the way that people thought it might. But I'm still a human being, as Kathy is, the night after and for about two weeks afterward, we were terrified. God was with us when we needed it. But once things sort of calmed down, any little noise in the night, that was up. One time it was Beth wheeling her little baby stroller around. She thought it was morning. Ah, Beth, please go back to bed. Okay. Another time was a rat chewing on something. <laughs> and I was up like that. My point is that we had the peace of God when we needed it, we never bought a gun to defend ourselves because we felt strongly that we did not want to kill somebody for wanting to steal our clothes 
or to take our money. Let me be clear, I was not personally brave. I kept hearing that. You were so brave. No, (laughs) I wasn't brave. I was terrified later. God's peace was there, as I say, when we needed it. God helped me in my weakness, and that's what God promises to do. We stayed in that house another 17 years. We, We had thieves again, but not like that, not inside. So what on earth are we doing? Title of my sermon. We should be making disciples. We should be teaching them from the scriptures and relying on the presence of Jesus through his Holy Spirit to accomplish these things. We don't do these things ourselves. For Kathy and me, part of that was including was protection from armed robbers when we thought we were at their mercy. We did not know what would happen. And that promise is not just for foreign missionaries like me. That promise is for everybody here, whatever you face. That promise is for people who are Jesus' disciples, he will be with you. Don't ever forget that. Don't plan for things, leaving that out. Don't worry about things, leaving that out, okay? As usual, some questions at the end. First of all, are you growing as a disciple? Uh, So how would your friends know that? What is the evidence of your growth as a disciple? Two, are you using God-given opportunities to share the gospel with others who may be different? It's very tempting to spend our time in our little holy huddles with people just like us. But if we're going to obey this command, we have to include others as well who may be outside of our comfort zones. Three, how does Jesus promise to be with us affect your attitude toward fear? We don't ever face these challenges alone. We sometimes fear looking ahead at what might happen and leave Jesus and the Holy Spirit out of the equation. We must not do that. Jesus' promise is for now, and it's for anything uncertain ahead of us. So let's try to remember these things. Making disciples is a long-term business. We're all required to be involved in some way of doing that within ourselves, within the congregation, and reaching out to others as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder that Jesus left final instructions for his disciples that also apply to us, his followers today. Thank you for a gospel that is still a privilege to share with others. And as people come to faith in Jesus, we we pray that they, along with the rest of us, will take discipleship seriously. Uh, Give us the desire to be lifelong learners so that our relationships with both you and others may deepen. We pray not only that you will enable us to be effective disciples, but that you will also receive the credit when that happens. Forgive us, Lord, for ever taking credit for what you have done in our lives. Father, we're so deeply grateful for Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, and our teacher. And this morning we affirm our eagerness to follow him more closely today. We pray these things in his name. Amen.